you know, we are a public agency and we work in a very specific community that we want to be good neighbors and be responsible for the environment and how we operate. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone, to season four of Smart Energy Voices. I'm John Fiella, founder of Smart Energy Decisions. We're thrilled to be back again this year with another season of inspiring conversations from leaders in the energy transition. If you've enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review on iTunes. At our recent distributed energy forum, Smart Energy Decisions' Deborah Channel sat down with Keith Warner the Aviation Utilities Manager for the Port of Seattle, to discuss his dual role running the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport and its affiliated utility, the importance of resiliency, the push for electrification, and his unique perspective on moving from the private sector with Boeing to his current public sector role. He shares a lot of great insights with Deborah. So let's get right to the conversation. Here's Deborah and Keith. First of all, Keith, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. And let's start by just having you tell us a bit about your current role and a little bit about your past experience. Sure. In my current role, um, I am with the Port of Seattle and the Aviation Division, which operates the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. In that role, I'm part of the facilities organization, so I I wear a facilities manager's hat, but we also run essentially a municipal utility that provides power, gas, water, cable television, garbage and recycling services. So I I have an interesting piece of being sometimes that facilities manager, but then sometimes being that utilities manager that's worrying about costs and tariffs and everything like that. I've only been in this role for two years. Had a great long career, 35 years with the Boeing company, and the majority of that was spent in the energy and environmental fields, very similar to what I'm doing at the port today, but had the opportunity to uh, move on from the private sector to the public sector for a change of pace. So that's where I am today. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, welcome again. Happy to have you with us. And let's just start about the sustainability goals and targets for the port of Seattle. What are, the, what are you aiming for now? Yeah, so at our highest level for the Port of Seattle, we strive to be the greenest and most energy efficient port in North America. So pretty lofty goal overall. The way we look at that a little deeper, first of all, from an energy perspective, all new load has to either come from conservation and or renewables. So that's one of the measures that we we have to track ourselves by as we try and grow the airport to meet the demand. We need to do it through additional conservation or renewables. And then we have a series of specific scope one, two, and three targets. So for scope one and scope two for the airport, we have a goal to be 50% reduction by 2030. And that's from a 2005 baseline. 
and to be carbon neutral or carbon negative by 2050. So that's for the scope one and scope two. We do a lot still with our scope three emissions. And we'll probably talk more about that. But our goal there is a 50% reduction also by 2030 and 80% reduction by uh, the year 2050. It's a lot. You're going to be busy. <laughs> now, let me ask, as a public entity, are, you, are your goals and plans tied to the state or are you your own entity when you make these plans? We are our own entity. What I am finding is those goals for the port were set several years ago. And now some of the new state regulations that have come in with some legislation in 2019 have, in some cases, leapfrogged a little bit. Now some of the state mandates drive compliance a little bit faster. We'll certainly comply with that, and we're probably going to rethink some of our targets for those longer periods and get a little more aggressive. That's interesting. Yeah, and particularly on our scope one emissions, we've already met our 2030 goal. We are rethinking about resetting that goal at this point right now. Something I love about the industry, you set a goal, you meet it, and you immediately, okay, we can do better. We're going to keep going. We hear that a lot, and that's great to see. Makes your job a little harder, but it's really good to see. (laughs) So I want to dig in a little bit. SeaTac was the first airport to sign a natural gas deal. And why was the decision made to go in that direction? How did that come about? You know, it really comes back to those numbers and looking at the numbers. When we looked at our scope two emissions, which is our purchased electricity, we had the benefit even back to our baseline year of 2005, we were already 95% carbon free because of the hydro system in the Northwest, along with a small amount of nuclear. So while we have a little gap to close on our scope two emissions, there's not much there. So when we look at our scope one and scope two together, it's nearly all coming from the heating that's required for our airport terminals, and then also some of the fuel used for our fleet of buses and vehicles. So that's really where we've been targeting the opportunities and really to reduce that 50%, no matter what we did with our power side, we would never get there. So it was a hard look. We did purchase some renewable natural gas about five years ago, but that contract didn't last long because it was more cost-effective for the supplier to send that to other states that had better credit profile. So about two years ago, we embarked on a longer-term contract. And last October, we started taking renewable natural gas to heat half of the airport load from a biofuel facility that supports that. So that contract alone, and it's a 10-year contract, so it takes us out to that 2030 time period, allows us to reach that goal a decade early. One other thing on a renewable natural gas, the other one was our fleet. And particularly, we have a fleet of buses that serve the rental car facility as well as some of our site lots. And so we also converted that fleet 100% over to the renewable natural gas. So the combination of that fleet going 100% and supporting half of our heating load with renewable natural gas is really what helped us attain those targets. And we'll talk a little bit later about that. You know, you've got the shuttle buses, you've got the actual airlines that you're dealing with, you've got the customers, basically the travelers coming in. Yes. So that's, you've got a lot of people to make happy with all of this. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I want to turn now to the topic of resiliency, which is a priority for the port. And you've got a program in place. So give us a little bit about the background of that on how that came about. Yeah, and we'll probably talk predominantly about our systems, but we um, looked at our resiliency for maintaining operations within the port. We serve 52 million passengers every year, which is roughly a million passengers a week. 
and want to make sure that the travel is safe. And if we have any system problems, you know, we look at the redundancy of our systems, whether it's keeping the terminal warm, providing drinkable water for the utility, and then also the power. And about a decade ago, not far from Seattle, was an earthen dam that was used for flood control. And it had some issues that potentially caused some risk to some flooding in a nearby valley that would have impacted the transmission lines serving the airport. As we worked through those contingency plans and that dam got resolved, we didn't forget about that risk that we had in terms of power. I've got for the heating side, you know, at the terminal, if natural gas supplies go down, we had backup fuel. If water supplies were interrupted by a break, we have storage and we have alternate supplies. But on the power side, didn't really have a lot of options. So in 2018, we installed what we call our alternative utility facility. It's a 30 megawatt power system powered generally by diesel, but we can also run it off of aviation fuel, which we have stored on site. And that more than serves our average load of about 20 megawatts in the summertime. So we built it for expansion so that as we continue to grow the facility, if there is ever a a system-wide grid outage, the airport will be able to maintain operations, serve the public that we have here, and in real emergencies is an avenue to get supplies and equipment in and out of the region. And in getting this program up and running, here's an, this might be an interesting example of your past as a private entity versus public. Yeah. What were the challenges and what were the differences in getting this program implemented? You know, when I was in the private sector, rarely did we have backup systems for our facilities. If there was an outage, production may go down, it may go down for a day or two, but you usually would recover over the weekends or over time. For the Port Authority, with 150,000 people in an airport in any day, plus 20,000 workers, that was a little bit too much risk. So we made the decision to make that investment to do that. You know, as, as time has gone by for the last couple of years, and we've seen what's happened through a Texas freeze and California wildfires and what that's doing to the grid, I, I think probably more and more even industries are looking at their resiliency when some of these normally reliable power supplies get interrupted. Again, in implementing this, you're dealing, instead of dealing with the board of directors or whatever at Boeing, you're dealing with commissioners. Yes, we're, like? we're governed by a five-member elected board of commissioners. So they make these level of decisions. So both resiliency and sustainability is a big piece of what they are pushing us towards. And now let's move on to the topic of electrification. I know you've got some programs in place. You're looking at more to come. Tell us what you're thinking in that area. Yeah. So uh, let me start by probably focusing on the things that move. So if you're an employee or a passenger coming to Seattle Tacoma International Airport today in our parking garage, we have 75 EV chargers if you're driving an electric vehicle. So you can charge while you're away on vacation. We're adding another 94 level two chargers to that facility and as demand grows, we will probably add more. And then if for whatever reason that's not working, we have four fast chargers in our cell phone waiting lot. So if you need a quick charge for 20 minutes or so, you're able to do that pretty easily. So that's how we're dealing with electric vehicles. In working closely with the, the airlines, they have a lot of ground support equipment. Think of the tugs that move airplanes around or move baggage carts around. As those airlines are looking at not only their costs, but their own sustainability metrics, they wanted to convert those fleets over to electric vehicles. 
So as the port, as a key enabler for that, we've installed 300 charging units around the airport that allow those airlines to make the investments to convert from a diesel tug over to an electric tug. And they simply plug into our system. They do pay for the power, but uh, they're able to lower their scope one emissions. And this is part of our scope three emissions. So it's helping the port as well. So we have those 300 units. We have under construction right now another 250, which will complete our full build out. So uh, no matter where airlines are at the airport, they'll be able to recharge their electric ground support equipment. So that's one area. Another area tied to our scope three emissions are, think of the taxis and the the rideshare drivers. We have a, a lot just outside the airport where usually they park and they stage. We're adding 10 fast chargers to that lot next year so that those that are using electric vehicles have a way to recharge their their vehicles before they go and they pick up a passenger. So that's another key initiative tied to our scope three emissions. We have a fleet of several hundred vehicles, just as the port authority does, whether it's security vehicles or trucks and vans and things like that. So we're slowly converting nearly all of those over to electrification. The one exclusion on that is our bus fleet. And as I mentioned before, We implemented a new bus fleet about three or four years ago. We looked at electrification at the time, but it just wasn't quite ready. So we made the decision to go with compressed natural gas. And we made the decision more recently to supply that with renewable natural gas. So that's our plan for the bus fleet through 2030. We'll probably explore electrification after that. Let's not forget about the aircraft. So when an aircraft lands and comes up to the dock at the airport, they're able to plug into shore power And we have a large air duct that is plugged into the aircraft, and it's what we call our preconditioned air program. And so utilizing our central heating and cooling system, this allows the the airline to turn off their auxiliary power unit, and they're completely fed by us to keep the aircraft heated or cooled as well as powered. That alone saves 5 million gallons a year for those airlines because they're not running those APU units for the hour that they're docked while they're offloading and reloading the the passengers. So again, another key enabler that becomes part of my scope one and scope two emissions, but it helps the airlines with their emissions as well. And so that that system is deployed throughout the airport and actually uses uh, an ice-based system we operated at night to lower our demand curve. And I guess just the last one on things that move, uh, electric aircraft are probably not that far away in our future. So uh, while we don't have specifications yet, we're already looking at what that future might be if we have to recharge some, think of a a small personal rotorcraft that's going to come and land near the airport to get on a larger plane. So that's a lot of what we're doing on electrification for things that move. Let me jump now to the building systems. So for the airport, we do operate through one large central mechanical plant that provides the chilled water to cool the facilities and the heating through steam system to heat the facility. And that system, like any system, needs to be updated. And as we continue to grow, we have some big decisions to make about how do we lower our carbon footprint in that central plant. Certainly on the cooling side, we have chillers that are running with renewable power, but it's those boilers. And so we have actually two studies underway right now to help plan our future. One is through our more traditional, what we call a utilities master plan, which is looking at very detailed 
processes around our facilities. But then we've also recently contracted with the National Renewable Energy Lab, NREL. They're doing a separate study for us, just another set of eyes and ears on what the future heating and cooling could look like to serve the airport. Those studies will be done early next year, and that will help guide our capital investments well into the future for how do we deal with that uh, large central plant. And again, for these plans, you've got a lot of constituencies that you've got to make happy. You've got, again, your commissioners, the airlines, the utilities. And then we also work very closely with our environmental folks that are tracking, you know, the, the carbon emissions. And, you know, we are a public agency and we work in a very specific community that we want to be good neighbors and be responsible for the environment and how we operate. So looking ahead a little bit, based on what happens with these two studies and the recommendations that come back, what might that mean for the utility side of your business? It means a lot. So today, our average electrical load for the, running the airport is roughly 17 megawatts. If we start electrifying some of the boilers from natural gas, you know, we can easily double that on a winter day. So then that means increased substation capacity may mean some changes to our own infrastructure. We're debating whether to stick with a steam system or a hot water system that changes some of the the downstream aspects. And I think one of the real challenges we have specifically to our part is we're very constrained. It's not like we have a lot of property that we could maybe build a second plant that would be an electrified plant and convert over our central plant. We pretty much have to keep it operating while we make whatever revisions we need to make. It's not like you can just shut down for a period of time and get this all figured out. And not in our it. case. We're very space constrained. So that's that's one of the challenges that this these studies will help us, will help guide us what we can do within both space constraints that we have and then the associated utilities as we electrify that mechanical plant. We have we have to A, go get more resources as a utility, but probably more importantly, we have to plan the capacity for the system to feed that that we probably don't have in place today. So that means additional substations and capacity. Mm -hmm. I want to turn to another area of DERs, and that's demand response, which is not not really a focus in the Pacific Northwest. And there are some reasons for that, which you can tell us about, but that might be changing. And I want to get your input on that. It is. You know, so I've been associated with the power industry in the Northwest for 25 years. And, you know, we certainly heard about demand response, but Never really have seen any utility level systems. While I was with the Boeing company, you know, we participated in demand and response programs in the PGM territory or in Texas or in California. But fortunately, the grid and the power supply in the Northwest just never demanded that. But things are changing. First of all, there's new state mandates we have that were initiated in 2019. Our, our grid has to be carbon neutral by 2030 which means by 2025, we have to eliminate all coal. So there's a couple thousands of megawatts that are leaving the system. Now, they may be supplanted by other renewables, but as those go away, the balance gets tighter and tighter. And so our resource adequacy of how much extra power we have gets smaller and smaller. And that was really recognized in the legislation that now is going to require every utility in the state to actually develop and implement a demand response program if they didn't have one before. And so particularly for us as operating our own municipal utility, that's something I've got to develop either with my customers or with my other hat as a facilities manager 
when the grid gets tight, you know, what do I do? What levers can I pull to lower our demand? Can we shift things over? Is storage going to be a part of that that maybe we don't have in place today? So fortunately, a lot of the other parts of the country have a lot of experience with demand response. So we'll we'll leverage some of those best practices that we're seeing elsewhere and see how it fits into the new grid in the Northwest. Keith, I just want to end by uh, going back to your experience on the public and private side. So what is it like going from Boeing You've already talked a little bit about some of the differences, but what what's the biggest change in terms yeah, of what you're um, doing? At Boeing, I was the utilities manager. I came to the port as the utilities manager. I think right away, it felt very comfortable. You know, utilities was utilities. I was still working in the same area. I knew the scope and the scale was different working for, you know, a multinational company and, and thinking about power issues in PJM in California and Texas. Whereas when I came to the port, when I would read those stories, all of a sudden I realized I don't need to worry about what's going on elsewhere. And it's also allowed me to get a lot deeper into the organization than I would have in the other role. But as, as time has gone by and I've been here two years, you know, a couple things I do see differently. Probably the, the biggest one is just around governance. And it's pretty natural. You know, now we are a public agency with elected commissioners and a lot of the decision making even at a relatively low financial level, it has to go through that and through a public process. So that was a big change. Whereas in the private sector, a lot of those decisions were delegated much further down the organization. If we needed a new power contract or a new garbage contract, it was pretty straightforward. Now, if it's over a certain dollar amount, we have to go up through our commission to get those approved. So that's a change and an interesting uh, way to do business. So I'm learning that. It takes a little bit more time. But I think the other thing that I've noticed between the two is public sector, we're, we're looking much further out. I'm looking now at what do we do with buses after 2030? We talked about the central plant and making decisions. You know, I have till 2030, but I need to start planning today. And particularly with that sort of utility hat on, I need to plan out further than we did at the Boeing company. Um, not that they didn't do long-range planning, but the window just seemed a lot shorter. Right. The difference between the, the timeframes is something we hear yeah. a lot between public and private. The last one, maybe, and we talked a little bit about it, and, and I'm sure things are even changing in the on the, the private sector, but surprised me a little bit how much focus there was on the scope three emissions within the port and really w- how we can enable whether it's the drivers or the airlines or even our dining and retail customers, we have the ability as the port to help enable them to lower their costs and lower their emissions. But it also helps us achieve our targets of the scope three emissions as well. Right. Everything is interconnected. It is. Which is great. And great to see the progress you're making. And we look forward to seeing uh, what's coming down the road. Thanks, Keith, for joining Deborah today in what was a great conversation at our Distributed Energy Forum. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for joining us on the podcast and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn more about how you can become a part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, Click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share conversations 
with leaders of the energy transition in every episode of this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. Thank you.